Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. As Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 17, apart from Christ, we're still lost in our sins with no hope of escape. But Christ has come. Christ was born into this world to die, and he died on our behalf. He went to the cross and he suffered for our sins, and he rose from the dead. And those of us who have placed our faith in him have found escape from our sins because he paid the price for it. He truly is a blessing to this world, whether the world knows it or not. But for those of us who are in Christ, we do know the truth of this. What powerful statements Elizabeth is making in regard to Mary and in regard to to Jesus. But then it says in verse 43, but why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? But why is this granted to me that the the mother of my Lord should come to me? Note that Elizabeth immediately refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord. This is a, a theological, theologically significant statement Elizabeth is making because the specific word she uses for Lord is the word kurios in the Greek, and it's a word that conveys divine significance. And so by using this word, we know that Elizabeth now recognizes the divine implications of the baby that Mary is carrying. She's recognizing that this baby is the long-awaited and promised Messiah. And, and, and by applying this term to the baby Jesus, she's revealing to us that Jesus is God himself and not just a mere human who will be a great prophet or a, a great servant like her own son John is going to be. She's using a term that's applied to God as Messiah in the scriptures. You know, a lot of people make the claim that Jesus never, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never did that. Well, first of all, that's completely untrue. It's completely untrue. I mean, just the I am statements that Jesus makes in, in, in the book of John alone, is it refutes that notion. But in addition to that, there are other places. Jesus made no bones about the fact of who he was. But even if he didn't, others did. Others did. Like right here, Elizabeth is doing it. She knows that this baby is going to be God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus always will be God in the flesh. But how does she know this? Since Mary hasn't said anything to her yet, how how would she even know this? I mean, there's really no indication that much dialogue has taken place. This is the greeting that's going, how would she know this? She knew it in the same way that the baby inside of her knew through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has clearly opened her eyes to the reality of whose presence she is in in this moment. Not Mary, but the baby that Mary's carrying, the divine Son of God. Remember, while the Holy Spirit has a lot of roles that he performs in in our world and in our lives and a lot of functions that he, he does, this is the one role and function he fulfills above all else, then and now. The one role. 
to point men and women to Jesus and to reveal him to all of us. That's his primary role. That's his primary function. Jesus even said that. In fact, in John chapter 15 and verse 26, Jesus said, John 15 and verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will do all kinds of miracles. He will give all kinds of gifts. He's going to do all kinds of neat stuff and make your churches grow. He's going to do, no, he will testify of me, Jesus says. All that other stuff I just said, look, there are so many things that many people are making the Holy Spirit about today, and far too much of it makes them about things that have nothing to do with what he's really about. Now, look, there, there are many things that he is about. He is about the gifts of the Spirit. He is about performing miracles at times. He is about doing different things. But, but all of these things are really secondary to his primary role and purpose of revealing Jesus to men and women and pointing them to him. That's his primary role. He will testify of me. And, and you know what? We need to be careful about not confusing all of these other things, as legitimate as many of those other things may be, of not confusing those things or giving them higher priority to the things above this one thing, which is the most important role that he fulfills. Yeah, the Spirit does impart gifts. Yet even the gifts are designed to support, not to take precedence over this primary role. You know, I think if we got that straight, a lot of the crazy stuff we see going on in Christianity today would fade away. When all of a sudden the gifts of the Spirit are not about me or my church, but everything falling into place to this one thing of the Spirit pointing us to Jesus of the Spirit revealing Jesus. That's who he came to testify of. Everything else is to work for that purpose. Even the Spirit's role of helping us understand the Scriptures, which we know the Bible tells us it's one of his roles. He helps us to understand and apply. It's all about revealing Jesus to us, even in the Scriptures, and his role of what Jesus came to do for us, who he is, what he's done. We need to get back to that priority. And when we get to that priority, I'm just telling you, a lot of the funky stuff, it's just going to fade away. And the priorities will be right. Well, look on at verse 44. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth now concludes by acknowledging Mary's faith and the role that it's played in all of what's happening. Blessed is she who believed, she says. Blessed is she who believed. Elizabeth recognizes that Mary's faith played an active role in receiving the promise being made to her by God. You know, it is a truth that God honors active faith and he works powerfully through it. Let me say that to you again. God honors active faith faith, and he works powerfully through it. Jesus said to the man who brought his demon-possessed son, you know, he said to the man who brought that, his son to Jesus for deliverance in Mark chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. What a truth. If you just believe, all things are possible to him who believes. 
At the same time, note that Scripture reveals that there are limitations that unbelief has in regard to, to what God is able to do. I mean, Jesus talks about even regard to what he was able to do or wasn't able to do in his hometown of Nazareth. In, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 58, I think this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Here's Jesus, the very Son of God, the very God in the flesh, the Messiah they've been waiting for. Listen what it says about his own hometown. Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Look, uh, there's a big debate of whether he couldn't do it or just wouldn't do it. I'm not even going to enter that debate because I don't know. I just know what the scripture tells me. It tells us he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief constrained, unbelief limited, unbelief restricted. It held back what God not only could do, but wanted to do for them when he came there. And that can be the case in our lives as well. Now, let me clarify something for you. This is not a matter of having great faith, that you got to have great faith so God can do these things in our lives so that he can work powerfully. No, it's not a matter of great faith or, or, or having too little faith. It's not about that. Remember what Jesus made clear when his disciples came to him in Luke chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. Luke 17, verse 5, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, how big mustard seed is? Itty bitty. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And it would obey you. See, it's Jesus is saying it's not a case of great faith or too little faith. It's a matter of having faith or not having any faith. That's really what the issue is. And there is a difference. God can work with some level of faith, regardless how small it is, even the size of a mustard seed. But he will not respond in work where no faith exists where no faith exists. Now, look, we don't know what level of faith Mary had in regard to the promise being made to her here. We don't know. But whatever level it was, Elizabeth clearly recognized it and validated it for her, telling her that because she believed God, there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. I can only say may the same be said for us as well in regard to our belief in what God has told us. Just believe. Have faith. Go on to verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary now begins declaring this heartfelt song of praise to the Lord, which is referred to in some Christian circles as the Magnificent, or a name that's applied because of the Latin translation of the first few words. You will note that this song resembles Hannah. You might remember Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. We're not going to read that, but Hannah was Samuel's mother, and she was barren too, and desperately wanted to have a child, and she would go up to the temple, and eventually God gave her a child. I mean, he didn't birth her through the Spirit, as he did with Mary, but it was a supernatural work nonetheless. And so, you know, Hannah cries out a song of praise, and there's a lot of similarities here in what Mary says and praises God for. 
And you also find it contains 12 other references or allusions to the Old Testament. As one commentator tells us, this means that Mary was a woman who studied and knew God's word. The scriptures were on her heart and came out through her song. May that be the same for us, that the more we're in God's word, the more our praise can be based on his word flowing out of us. And it will. But, but here in this song, Mary declares the profound nature, the blessing that she's receiving in all that God is doing in her life and in Elizabeth's. And all she wanted to do because of it all was to magnify the Lord. She just wants to magnify the Lord. Literally, magnify here means to declare the greatness of the Lord. She just wants to praise him for being great. From the depths, it says, of her very being. When it says her soul and her spirit, that, that's the depth of her very being. She wants to magnify the Lord. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's a great thing for all of us to do as we see God's hand at work in our lives and in our world. And, and we should magnify the Lord. I it's just so often, you know, I just find myself more and more just crying out praise to the Lord, not, not crying out even requests as much as just praise and not because he does something specific, but because of who he is and what he is and just thinking of what he's done for me. I just find myself oftentimes just praise you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing. It should be our hearts. But it's also significant to note here that Mary says she is rejoicing in God, her Savior. God, my Savior, Mary says. Now, why am I saying that's significant? Because it tells us that Mary recognized that God was her Savior. She's recognizing that God was her Savior. And, and in doing that, what it really implies is that she recognized that she, like all other fallen human beings, needed a Savior. And that she recognized that God was the only one who could fill that role in her life. A realization that I hope that each of you listening in here today or in the coming week have come to as well. And by the way, this really does put to rest the notion that, that some people hold that Mary was born sinless. If she was born sinless, she would have no need to make this proclamation. She would have no need for a savior. She'd have no need for this role in her life. Mary recognized that she needed a savior, just as we all need a savior. And she knew her salvation was in God alone. Now, unlike Mary, who at this point in her life only had a shadowy view of the role that Jesus would play in this regard, we do know, you and I do know, we do understand that Jesus is the one through whom our salvation is ultimately found because he alone purchased our salvation on the cross of Calvary. And since Jesus is God in the flesh, it is appropriate to attribute salvation to God alone. Mary will receive salvation from the very son who she will bear. She's already looking to God by faith for that, and he will provide it for her in the same way that he's provided it for us through Jesus Christ. Hmm. Look on, verse 48. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so as Mary continues, it becomes clear that while she makes reference to the blessing she's now experiencing in her own life personally, 
And by the way, you could, if taken out of context, you say, boy, Mary sure is being arrogant here. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Contextually, we realize that Mary's heart wasn't one of being braggadocious or arrogant in any shape or form here. What she's ultimately recognizing in this statement is that, yeah, generations are going to call her blessed, but it's God behind it all. It's God who's done this thing. She recognizes that it's God's power that is bringing all of it to pass and not anything on her part. She recognizes that she's simply the vessel through whom God has chosen to empower and to work through. She even acknowledges that she's a nobody, right? She starts out by saying, for he has regarded the lowly estate or the lowly state of his maidservant. That idea of lowly state is the idea of being a nobody of nobodies. And yet she's saying that God is lifting her to a place where all generations will call her blessed. But she also clearly recognizes and acknowledges that it's, it's all of God and none of her. And look at what she says. For he, he who is mighty has done great things for me. It's not me. He has done this. And holy is his name, not holy is Mary's name. Holy is his name. You know, I am truly bothered by a lot of the spiritual arrogance I see on the part of Christians sometimes, especially God's servants and Christians, you know. God raises them up. He uses them powerfully. He, he does mighty things through them. And then over time, they begin to forget that the powerful things that are happening, that the things that are going on in their lives have nothing to do with them. But they begin to think it's all about them. They forget that all of what they are, all of what they've accomplished It's because the Lord saw fit to use them. They seem to forget their lowly estate and they begin to think themselves things that they're not. And it's spiritually repulsive. At least it is to me. It's spiritually repulsive. And I don't honestly get it. You know, I recall one time a pastor who had fallen into all sorts of sin when he got confronted about it. His answer to the confrontation after he was supposedly repentant was, I, I guess I just let my celebrity status go to my head. And the person was counseling, realized in that moment that there was still a problem because this guy saw himself as a celebrity. He even said to him, what in the world ever made you or continues to make you think that you are a celebrity? Look, I don't care whether you're a pastor in a pulpit preaching to thousands or you are a a, a person sitting in the pew who has a ministry to somebody in your neighborhood because you've shared faith with them and they've come to Christ. Or maybe God has used you powerfully to impact somebody's life that just needed that to happen, whatever it was. Maybe he had you lay hands on them and they got healed. Maybe you were talking to them about something, some sin they were caught up in, and God used you to counsel them and they've broken free and, and they're thanking you for it. Be very careful not to begin to think that this is about you. Mary realized that, and, and again, Mary, I mean, think about who Mary is here, what God is doing through her. And even Mary says, he's regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. I'm a nobody of nobodies. God has done this. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, not holy is my name. My heart is a pastor and and I really mean this, is that if the Lord tarries, 
that as time goes by and, and age does fully catch up and I step away from here, the Lord calls me home, I'd never be remembered. I don't want to be remembered. But what I do pray is that what the Lord has done in, in your lives, maybe even from just listening into teachings or whatever, what the Lord has used me for will impact you, but my name would be forgotten because me, I'm a nobody just like you. We're nobodies and God chooses to use nobody so that his power and his might can be displayed. May that always be our hearts. It truly is Mary's and I find it astounding. Look at verse 50. She goes on, she says, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Finally, Mary concludes with this crescendo of declarations about the Lord and his power and greatness and about what he alone has has done and is doing for his people. He's shown strength with his arm, she says. He's scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts while putting down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things while sending the rich away empty. Because of his mercy and his promises, he has helped his servant Israel, whom Jesus, this baby she's carrying, would be the fulfillment of those promises. And Mary knew it. Mary knew it. I love this praise. I love this praise because it's all about God. It's about his strength. It's about him bringing down the proud and raising up the humble. It's about God filling the hungry with good things and Sending away the rich empty, or really hungering, I guess, would be the better contrast. You know, I think about that. I pray he's doing that in your lives today, that he's, he's showing his strength with his arm in your life, that he's, he's raising you up because your heart is one of humility and, and you are the lowly and he's raising you up so that he can work through you and that he's filling you. You know, I got to tell you, honestly, when I think about filling the hungry with good things, the longer I walk with the Lord, the hungrier I am. You know, the world, in contrast, is trying to fill its life with, fill their lives with everything else. Even some Christians are trying to fill their lives with all sorts of other things that, that have to do more with them than has to do more with the Lord. I'm just hungry for him, and he fills me with good things. He's filling us all right now with good things as we're spending time in his word together. In, in a little bit, we're going to commune together. By the way, I just would mention that if you don't have elements ready, maybe if you're, there's two of you there, one can slip into the kitchen and get her. You can take a quick disappearance and go grab your elements so you can commune with us. But you know what? Even as I take communion together with God's people, I'm reminded as I take that cup of juice that represents his shed blood, the broken body, that, that, that wafer that represents his broken body shed for me, I'm, I'm reminded of the good things that he's filling me with. Oh, not the juice and the bread, the good spiritual truths of things. He truly has filled the hungry with good things while sending the rich away. And yes, because of his mercy and his promises, he's helped his servant Israel. But you know what? Because of his mercy and his promises, now he's reached out beyond his servant Israel to the entire world. And he's reached out to us, the Gentiles. And we know his mercy and the promises and the good promises made because of it all. Hmm. Look at verse 56. And Mary remained with her about 
three months and return to her house. We're now told that Mary stays with Elizabeth an additional three months, which based on the fact that Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary arrived would mean that Mary was likely there until John was born, most likely. And then she returns home and note we're told that Mary returns to her house, which tells us that she was still a virgin. She was not shacking up with Joseph. She's still living in her family home because she's still only betrothed to waiting for that marriage to be fulfilled and finished. And we talked about that last week. Look at verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. Finally, the day has arrived, and Elizabeth gives birth to a healthy baby boy. And and we're told that on the eighth day following his birth, which was the customary day for being circumcised, but it was also the customary day for naming the child. And the crowd on that day expected him to be named Zacharias after his father, which was something else that was also a tradition in Judaism, because that's what you did. Your firstborn son was generally named by tradition after the father. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.